0: Good morning. Today's scripture reading will be Luke 3:23 through 38 Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jena, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, The son of Mattathias. The son of Simeon. The son of Josekins. The son of Joda. The son of Jonan. The son of Resa. The son of Zerubbabel. The son of Shealtiel. The son of Neri. The son of Melchi, The son of Adi. The son of Kosam. The son of Elmadam, The son of Ur. The son of Joshua. The son of Elizir, Elizir. The son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elijah, the son of Meleah, the son of Minna, the son of Matatathea, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Paris, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Roe, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is God's Word. You may be seated. be seated.
1: I love it when the Scripture victim, I mean the Scripture reader... As an opportunity. I mean, it's just not Christmas unless you read the genealogy of Jesus. Brad, did, uh, did anybody come and uh, get those keys? If you, uh, if you were not uh, in the auditorium early part of this assembly, we announced that uh, there were a set of keys. There is uh, a key that goes to a Ford vehicle. There's lots of keys that go to doors and stuff like that. Uh, if you lost your keys on the back 40 of our parking lot, Brad Speed. Brad, can I get you a stand real quick? Yellow shirt. He's got your keys. Come and see Him before the... Uh, uh, well, you're not going to be able to go home and have lunch until you see Brad. <laughs> it is It is uh, a great morning for us to be together. Amen? Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, so much to be grateful for. So much. You've been down to us and allow us to see You, Father, in creation and through Your Word and most perfectly in the Christ. And what we see, Father, is, is, is love that redeems and love that is compassionate and love that is merciful and gracious. And we are so grateful for all of these things. And we pray, Father, that especially as we think about the birth of Your Son, Jesus, the a part of, of, of the Trinity, the, of, of the Godhead, God the Son who leaves Your presence and becomes like one of us, Father. Out of love, we are moved. And we pray, Father, that not only are we moved, but that we be changed. We be changed, Father, into the kind of people reflect that kind of love, in, not only in this church family, but in this community. And so as we we think about the birth of Jesus this morning, we ask that You give us eyes to see and ears to hear in such a way that we turn toward You. And we pray this, all of it, with all of our heart, in the name of Your Son Jesus and all the church said. Many of you know the PBS show, the Antique Roadshow. Uh, People bring some of their old things, maybe something that they have inherited, something that they run across in a flea market, or maybe something that they forgot that they had and they find it in the attic, and they bring it from their home to this place where they're filming the show, and it's it's appraised by experts. And uh, a lot of times what you see are some of the pricier things, uh, the more expensive things that make it actually on the TV show. But if you look at the kinds of things that actually make it through all of the different places and the appraisals that they do all over the United States, the average average object is worth only about $100, about $100, except uh, in 2009, there was this uh, woman, lived in Raleigh, North Carolina. She found some jade that had belonged to her father, had been passed to her. She had not really looked at it all that much. She didn't really know if it was jade or not. Decided to take it in and to have it appraised. Now, this is something that had been in her family since the 30s and the 40s. Her father had brought it from China, someplace in the Orient, and it was appraised at over a million dollars. Not too long after that, there was a woman who uh, brought in a, a, a painting that had come into their possession, someone had given that painting to them as a housewarming gift. Turned out that it was a Clifford Still. And it was a painting of the Grand Coley Dam that came in at the appraisal, uh, if it was close, to about half a million dollars. Now the moral of, I think, the story is you have to be careful what you regift. <laughs> The real moral of the story is sometimes you don't recognize the real value of a thing until you know the real value of a thing, right? And I think that's true about Christmas. Every year, um, I I run into disciples of Jesus. I run into Christians who sometimes feel a little bit guilty about celebrating Christmas. And the reason for that is through their life, uh, they have heard some objections to Christmas and not sure if they get their mind around all of that, but they, you know, they still struggle with it a little bit. And every year, it's sort of the, the some of the same conversations. And what I thought I would do is, before we jump into the the message this morning, is to to about ten years ago I preached uh, a sermon on Christmas and Christianity and these kinds of things. What I want to do is maybe look at three of those objections that you find to Christmas and talk about them for a little bit before we jump into uh, what it means for God to be our Lord, for Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, and for Him to be a Prince of Peace and all of the other things that He's described as in in the Christmas story. So I want to talk very quickly about three objections to Christmas. First one is, Christmas is a pagan holiday. And that goes back to trees and wreaths and candles and things like that. Now, what we know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, is that Jesus was not born on December 25th. We know that without a doubt. But how was the date of December 25th chosen? Well, in antiquity, in the ancient world, there was a series of pagan festivals. They went by names like Saturnalia. There was a, a longer name in Latin that um, that when it's translated comes out to the birthday of the unconquered winter solstice. And all of these pagan festivals would culminate on the, the, the uh, 25th of December with this unbridled revelry. Well, in the year 354, now it might have been a little bit earlier than that, but in December 25th, 354 A.D., this is believed to be the first time, the first date, the first year that Christmas was celebrated as sort of we know it. And it was all an attempt to convert a day of extreme paganism, extreme immorality, into a day for the Christian faith. And converted it was. The reality has changed as all of those pagan symbols, no longer are associated with, with the tree or with the wreath or with the candle. In fact, those things are associated primarily and nearly exclusively with the Christian faith. Not long ago, uh, well, I, how time flies when you get older, right? It was about a decade and a half ago when we were preaching and working in another state. Uh, Ellen and I and, and our family were very close to a, to a state university. And during the, uh, the Christmas holiday for that state university, Uh, the employees were not allowed to wear shirts that had Christmas trees. They were not allowed to have wreaths or any of those kinds of things because all of those things were associated with the birth of Jesus. And those things were offensive to some people on that campus. And so the reality is that the symbolism has has been lost, that pagan symbolism has all been lost to those things and and, um, uh, associated primarily with the Christ. Uh, Number two, no biblical command to celebrate Christmas. And that's true because, and for that matter, we're not given any command to celebrate Father's Day or Mother's Day, but, but we do. I would, I would mention, though, that just because something is not expressly commanded in the Bible does not mean that it is forbidden. For instance, in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, Jesus is at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem. The Feast of Dedication, and you might have a footnote in your Bible, that says this is actually Hanukkah which commemorated the rededication of the temple by the Jews when they took Israel back from the Seleucids about, uh, about 150 years or so before the time of Christ. Now, what's interesting about this is that it's not mentioned in the Bible because it takes place actually in the four centuries that happened between the end of Malachi and the writing of the Gospels. There's about 400 plus years, more or less, in that period of time in the middle of that silence where there is no inspired word coming that we have a record of. Between Malachi and Matthew, you have in about 150, 150 B.C. or so, you have the Hasmoneans and, and, and the Jewish army taking back, Israel from, uh, taking back uh, Israel from the Seleucids and rededicating the temple at that time. And yet, you have Jesus at that feast of dedication in John chapter 10. And then the last one we would look at is uh, we should think about the birth of Jesus every day and not just one day. And, and I agree with that. If you've, um, if you've been reading part of the Old Testament in preparation for, for Christmas this year, maybe one of the things that uh, you've been reading through in the Old Testament, you remember that the Lord Himself instituted on the 15th of Nisan, which is the Babylonian way of saying the 15th of Aviv, which when you read Exodus, that is the, the day that was instituted for Passover. And God wanted the people, His own people, to have a day out of the year in which they really thought deeply and profoundly about about the Passover and about the Exodus and what that meant for them spiritually and their relationship with them. God wanted the people to think about the significance of, of that Passover. But He also wanted them to think about it every day. He wanted them to think about uh, about it as a, a, a way that they filtered the events in life. In our study of Judges on Sunday night, if you've been a part of that, one of the ways that the people of Israel got off track spiritually was they were not thinking of Passover more often. In fact, out of all of the things that God could have said to them as He was trying to get them back on track spiritually, was this: He said to them, "Have you forgotten who it was that delivered you out of the hands of, of, of the, out of your enslavement to Egypt? Do you not remember that at the the death of a?" The, of the firstborn, that you came out of your slavery to Egypt. And so I think God wants us to think about all of these special events in the history of faith, and He wants wants us to think about them all the time, but He also understands the significance of taking one day to rekindle joy in our hearts in gratitude for the greatness of His unfailing, faithful love to us. And so when we think about Christmas as disciples... We think about the great mystery of God becoming a man through the Incarnation. And we think about the great blessing of our salvation. He is Christ, our Savior, and it is the blessing of our salvation as our sins are forgiven and we are transformed and then enlisted into His human project. But we also remember at this, this time of when the whole world seems to be tipping its hat to the birth of Jesus, we also remember that the Messiah is our Lord. And so in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. Say the last two words with me. The Lord. You know, the very last words of the Bible are these. Revelation chapter 22, verse 21. The grace of the Lord, Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, Jesus is not the Lord in some sort of a general garden-variety, vanilla, generic way. He is our Lord. He is the Lord by which we live our life through that designation every day. When Peter is writing to the church under the, the 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 rule of the Roman Empire, he makes this this, this staggering statement in First Peter chapter three. He says, In your hearts, and he's writing to the church, he says, even though you know, Rome is the big empire, in your hearts you revere Christ as what? The Lord. What that means is you set apart, you sanctify, you make that that setting apart in your heart of Jesus as Lord the special part, the core part, the center part of your life. Now, What does the Lordship of Jesus mean though? Let me give you a definition. The definition is this, the unequivocal allegiance and unconditional obedience a disciple renders to Jesus Christ. Let me read that again. The unequivocal allegiance and unconditional obedience a disciple disciple renders to Jesus Christ. Let's break that definition down just, just a little bit. Unequivocal allegiance. What that means is that a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth lives his life in such a way that there is no question as to where he takes his cues in life. That you live your life in such a way that people are able to readily identify the fact that you are different. And that difference is because unequivocally, without reservation, without any uh, diluting down that that allegiance, you you live your life according to the rule of God, according to the rule of Christ in your life. And then number two, the unconditional obedience. It simply means that you have taken the if clause out of your obedience. What we do a lot of the time is we insert that if clause in our obedience to to God, in our obedience to the Christ. We say, you know, I'll obey Jesus if I get the life I want. I will obey Jesus wherever He wants me to go if I understand what He's talking about. I will obey Jesus if I agree with what it is that He desires. I'll obey Jesus if I get the life I want, the right spouse, the right family, the right job, etc., etc. Now, we live in a culture, and you know this as well as I do. We talk about this all the time. We live in a culture that really fights against the idea of someone other than the individual self being in charge. In Western culture, what we believe is that there is not an absolute truth that everyone lives according to. That truth is determined by what is perceived as proper inside of the individual. That truth is not something outside of the self that we as human beings conform our life to or align our life with. Truth is is determined on the inside of the human and all of life and our experience of life and our judging of life and filtering of life and responding and reacting to life has to conform to that. Now that way of thinking is confronted by Jesus who says in John chapter 14, I am the way and the what? The truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Many times we accept Jesus as the truth until we hit a a speed bump in the road and find ourselves not understanding Him or agreeing with Him. And so the Lordship question kind of boils down to this. Will I follow Him even when it doesn't go my way? Do I understand Lordship that way? That I will follow Him even when it doesn't go my way? Or I understand Him, or I I completely uh, agree with it. Will I follow Him even when it doesn't go my way? Two things briefly about Jesus as Lord. What it means to say that Jesus is Lord is this. We absorb His supremacy into all the areas of our life. Now that sounds kind of funny. We normally speak about these kinds of things like this. We acknowledge His supremacy. We acknowledge His Lordship. But there is a subtle, but I think hugely important difference between just saying we acknowledge it and that we absorb it. Think for a moment about the difference between the two words acknowledge and absorb. We acknowledge something when we recognize it to be true. We we acknowledge something when we recognize it to be true. But what does it mean when we say that we absorb it? It means that, that we bring it on the inside. That we bring it all the way on the inside. That we that we soak it in. It's swaddled. It's something that we embrace and bring into our very way of thinking and living. Now, it is right and proper to say that we acknowledge Jesus as the Lord of our lives because that is a true thing. He is the Lord of our lives. It's a completely different thing, though, to say that we have absorbed His Lordship into our lives. It goes deeper to say that Jesus is absorbed as Lord into our relationships. He is absorbed. It gets all the way on the inside, all the way down to the core, into our soul as Lord in the use of our language, our desires, our money, whatever it might be. You know, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, not too long ago. It asked the question, why work out when you can just buy the clothes and look like you did? I'm all for that. But the article went on to say, you know, people are buying sports clothing without actually practicing the sport. And then this quote, the U.S. athletic apparel market will increase by nearly 50 percent to more than 100 billion at retail by 2020, driven in large part by consumers snapping up stretchy tees and leggings that will never see the fluorescent lights of a gym. Which sounds kind of amazing. I mean, you can look like an athlete, you know, without ever going to a gym. I mean, you can get the clothing, the form-friendly, body-forming, conforming type of clothing, and look athletic and have numbers and you know all that, you know, compression and all these kinds of things on it, and never, ever, ever go to a gym. Never go do yoga. Never run. Never do any of these things. You know, the bottom line is that some of us sort of we wear the clothing of Christianity, but we don't absorb. The lordship of Jesus, all the way deep, deep, deep down into the core. When we talk about Jesus being Lord, we absorb his supremacy into all the areas of our life. And Jesus doesn't have it any other way either. In Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he says, Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6, John, who had picked up his cross and followed the Christ, at the end of his life, writes, whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did. And then the second thing, not only do we absorb His supremacy into all the areas of our life, but we accept the changes His Lordship brings. We accept the changes His Lordship brings. Jesus used a lot of images to help people understand what it meant to follow Him. There are two particular images that sort of stand out. The first one is, He talked about picking up a cross. He's talking about a crucifixion. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about the crucifixion in our church because it is at that point that Jesus is paying the price for our sins to be forgiven. That nobody gets into heaven for free. Somebody has to pay for the guilt and, and, and the penalty of the of, of, of the crimes that we have committed against God's good earth and bringing the thorns and the thistles in. And so we know about the crucifixion and we know how brutal the crucifixion is and, and if you saw Mel Gibson's the, 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 the Passion of the Christ the, the, mo- the movie is just brutal. The movie is, is, is just absolutely brutal. But I think it's probably one of the, the, the best ways for us in this 21st century to get our minds around what it meant to be crucified. And one of the things you notice is that when, you know, there are lots of ways to die in the world and lots of ways to be killed in the world, the crucifixion was special. Because what the crucifixion meant to, to be crucified was about the death of the self, the self is destroyed before the body dies. It's about humiliation. One of the reasons that, that the, the, the Jewish Sanhedrin wanted Jesus to be crucified is because it would destroy the self. It would destroy His reputation. It would destroy uh, his, 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 his standing and status in the eyes of the people because it was so humiliating. And so when we speak about picking up, or Jesus speaks to us about picking up our cross, and we talk about, you know, we need to pick up our cross and follow Jesus, we are talking about a death of self. A death of self that sometimes is incredibly humiliating. But then there's a second thing that Jesus talks about. He says it to to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're what? Born again. Unless they're born again. The the language of dying to self and the language of being born again of the new new birth is the language of a radical change that takes place in your life. That's what it means to absorb Jesus, not just acknowledge it but to absorb the Lordship of Jesus what his supremacy into your life is that it brings about a, a, a radical transformation in your life. Now that's a word that gets stolen from us because of all of the things that are happening in the world, but that is, that is precisely the word that describes what happens to a human being when, when they accept the salvation and the grace that comes to them from God's love. And God's Spirit begins to live inside of them. And God's Word becomes for them the voice of God speaking to them about what it means to live as a human being in the creation that God Himself forged and fashioned and put together. The language of dying to self and being born again is the language of this transformation that takes place in your life. Now think back to the previous two sermons about the birth of Jesus. first sermon about the Incarnation. Why did Jesus leave the perfect harmony and unity of the Trinity in Heaven and enter into our world through that Incarnation? Because He loves us. His first breath. Think about this. His first breath. As God come in the flesh, born of Mary, born of a virgin in Bethlehem, was for us. second sermon dealt with our salvation. He is our Savior. Why did Jesus suffer the death on the cross for our salvation? Say it louder. Because He loves us. His last breath, as He died on the cross, was for our salvation. So then, Why does Jesus demand to be Lord of our lives or nothing? Because He what? He loves us. Because He loves us. You've heard me say over and over again that our human hearts were made to be sensitive to the presence of God and to respond to His presence with worship. The Bible never says, Worship! Worship! Because it assumes that that's what we're going to do. That our hearts are going to be sensitive to God. What the Bible says over and over again is if you're going to worship, which is why you're made, make sure that it's God and not something else. And when humans decided to not trust God and to not obey Him because we did not think that God had our best interest at heart, we became enslaved to all of those lesser lords who abuse us. Because whatever we worship is going to be the very thing that controls us, right? When we worship money, money can destroy us. It can destroy marriages and families and careers. When we worship acceptance, we will do whatever it takes to be accepted. And that can be a devastating experience. And it's here that we see that Jesus is called to discipleship and to follow Him as Lord is seen as love. He is the only Lord who will not abuse us or enslave us. In Luke 14, right before He talks about picking up that cross and following Him, He says, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be My disciple. You know, it's a hard saying. What Jesus is really saying is is that your commitment to My Lordship, your commitment to walking as I walk, to live as I live, your commitment to obey Me, even when it doesn't go your way, and even when you don't understand it, and even when you don't like it very much, is that your commitment to My Lordship has to be so profound and so great and so serious that it makes all of those other commitments that you have in life look like hate. Someone says, why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone give up everything to follow Him? And the reason is, He gave up everything already for you. And that's why He's Lord. Great passages about the death of Jesus is that hymn that we find in Philippians chapter two that talks about the incarnation. That he he did not think that equality with God was something that he should just grasp and hold on to, but emptied himself and became a man, and not just a man, but a servant, and not just a servant, but a, a servant who who was obedient even unto death. And it's that obedience. That brings the exaltation to His Lordship. That every knee will bow before Him and acknowledge Him as Lord. He offers Himself to you as one who understands you. In the incarnation, there's not anything that any of us have ever gone through that He Himself has not in some point... at a point in his life, experienced like we experience it. The temptations, the grief, the suffering, whatever it might be. There there is nothing that you have done. I say this as your minister. There's nothing that you have done in the past that would keep you out of God's kingdom, that would keep you out of God's grace, that would keep you from, from being saved and all of your sins forgiven. There is nothing in your past that would keep that. But he also is our Lord out of love. And what he calls of us is, is to follow his life. What he calls of us is to allow his voice to be the directing voice in our life. And it is it is it is a, a relationship, of lordship that is fraught, that overflows, that over is, is overfilling of the heart and soul with blessings. As Ben leads us in a song this morning, it's an invitation song. As our shepherds come down to the front, if there are some ways that we can bring you into relationship with with the God who became man in order to be our Savior, in order for us to follow Him as the Lord of the universe, and you would like for that to happen today, then we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and praise God.
0: Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let
1: earth receive her King.